Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 7th of February, 2024, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Uh, I'm your host, Mike Robinson, and joining me today, uh, we've got lots of people. We've got Vanessa Bailey, Charles Mallet, uh, David Miller, and uh, Matt Campbell. So we've got a lot to pack in today. Uh, we're going to get started off from Damascus and Vanessa. Welcome to the program. Uh, and you've got an update for us on the latest uh, with respect to Iraq and Syria and, well, US aggression there. So of the 3rd of February, um, the US uh, struck areas of Iraq and Syria uh, on the border basically between Syria and Iraq. Uh, how the US is portraying the attack, of course, they're describing it as being in self-defense um, against the recent spate of attacks, more than 160 attacks by the Islamic resistance in Iraq against uh, illegal U.S. bases, both in Iraq and in Syria. So how is the U.S. playing it? They're saying basically with U.S. strikes in Iraq and Syria, Biden sends Iran a signal of deterrence and restraint. But this is very far from the truth. Let's have a look at the map of uh, where the uh, missiles struck. Um, the U.S. claimed over 85 targets and that they fired uh, 125 missiles. You can see immediately that the majority of the targets are on the border, as I said, between Syria and Iraq. Um, interesting to point out that many of the areas that were hit were previously controlled by ISIS, of course, a U.S. proxy in both Iraq and Syria. Um, and we'll talk about the subsequent ISIS attacks immediately following the U.S. aggression a little bit later in the report. So let's have a look at uh, the claims by the U.S. that Tower 22 um, was what was hit in northeast Jordan. That is palpably untrue, according to source reports that I've received both military and intelligence from inside Syria. In reality, it was an area between the Al Tanef illegal US base and Rukban refugee camp, as I've marked on the map, that was actually hit. So effectively, the US was trying to deflect from the fact that uh, they were targeted uh, as an illegitimate uh, military base inside Syrian territory. So that's why they've basically portrayed it as an attack on a US outpost in Jordanian territory. Two B-1 bombers were brought in from the U.S. and launched the attack from Qatar, Jordan, Kuwait, and I believe there were four F-16s. The U.K., according to uh, Russia, took part in the attack. Iraq immediately denied Washington's claim that they had uh, notified the Iraqi government prior to the overnight attack. And as a result of Jordan's role in the attack, um, Iraqi ministers in the Iraqi parliament have um, initiated a proposal, uh, if we can just move, thank you, um, to halt subsidized oil exports to Jordan. There has basically been international outrage at the uh, disproportionate aggression, which has achieved none of its aims because it didn't basically target um, the Islamic resistance at all. It targeted Syrian Arab army positions and PMU, the Popular Mobilization Forces positions in Iraq. And they, of course, are integrated into the Iraqi military. 
So I just want to show a very quick clip of the attack on Al Qaim, which is on the Iraqi border, which shows how the US basically was trying to carry out very much a shock and awe attack, which effectively um, targeted many civilians, over 40 killed in this attack. We can do that. As I said, the aggression was roundly uh, condemned. Uh, Russia called an emergency meeting at the UN Security Council, which was yesterday, I think. Um, I sorry, it was on Monday, and this is what uh, part of what Nabensia said at the meeting. If we can roll this. And this demonstrates once again to the entire world the aggressive nature of US policy in the Middle East and the full disregard of Washington for norms of international law. Participation in the US attacks of the UK RAF should no, give no, no one the illusion that there is some sort of international coalition in London place. London still has to respond for its zealous support of serious provocational attacks of the big brother in Washington. And also the ongoing attacks against Yemen, the actions of the Anglo-Saxons pose a direct threat to international peace and security. They undermine the world order based on the primacy of universal international law and the central role of the United Nations. Perhaps this kind of mob-like action is part of the China also condemned uh, the attack in very unequivocal terms. Uh, it, the, the United States claims that its actions were in response to the attacks on its military to safeguard its own security. Iraq and Syria have, however, already voiced strong condemnation. The U.S. purports that it does not seek to create conflict in the Middle East. However, in reality, it does the opposite. History has repeatedly shown that military means is not the solution. He cautioned, noting that the actions by the United States will exacerbate the vicious cycle of violence in the Middle East. Underneath the rising tensions in the past few months is the failure, of course, to implement the ceasefire in Gaza. And we are now standing at a critical crossroad at stake is the critical future of our world. And then um, uh, the day before yesterday, I did uh, uh, an interview with Tehran uh, University professor Sayed Mohammed Morandi, also an expert on regional geopolitical affairs. And this is what he had to say. And bear in mind my comments about ISIS when you're listening um, to what he had to say about the attack. Instead, was they attacked 
Syrian government positions, as you rightly pointed out. They attacked mm-hmm. Iraqi government positions. The popula- popular mobilization forces in Iraq are part of the Iraqi armed forces, and they led the fight against ISIS. And you rightly pointed out that as soon as the Americans carried out these attacks on Iraqi government positions and destroyed Iraqi government property and killed Iraqi government-funded soldiers, uh, ISIS carried out four attacks, which was definitely not a coincidence. In the case of Syria, the Americans did the same. They attacked bases that are well-known, that are there to protect uh, the the public against ISIS uh, militants, ISIS militants that uh, are trained by the Americans. And which uh, in Al-Tanaf or uh, or other regions, they're based. They go out, attack Syrian soldiers, and then they go back to those bases. And they never carry, they never attack the Americans because they don't bite the hand, the hands that feed them. So, uh, what the what the what the Americans did basically was that instead of re- let's say retaliating against those people who carried out the attack. They went and attacked those troops that are fighting ISIS, mm-hmm. and then and then also, of course, the whole notion of retaliation is meaningless because U.S. occupation forces in Syria uh, are not legitimate. Therefore, they have no right to attack, let alone or retaliate. In Iraq, the parliament voted for the United States to leave. The U.S. armed forces refused to do so. So they have no right to attack or retaliate, as they call it. But of course, the United States is an empire. They um, and interestingly, um, because during our conversation, of course, we pointed out that um, what the U.S. and the U.K. are doing is to defend the genocidal Zionist settler state of Israel that is committing genocide against Palestinians. Um, on a on an hourly basis, um, last night at around 12:30, Israel attacked uh, Homs, the central area of Syria, from Tripoli in Lebanon, um, with more than 10 missiles. There were uh, seven dead, including a woman and child, and 13 injured in the attacks. And it's worth pointing out, it's around 100 kilometers where they targeted. We're not sure yet if it was a targeted assassination. It was definitely targeting Hezbollah and Syrian Arab army military uh, positions. But also, it's worth pointing out, again, the ISIS connection about 100 kilometers away. ISIS had recently uh, carried out attacks against the hydrocarbon and uh, oil fields to the east of Homs, I'm sure also a coincidence. Yes, okay, thank you very much for that, Vanessa. Uh, Now, uh, of course, Vanessa's just given a report on what's going on in the Middle East, uh, but if the government uh, gets its way, uh, she will not be able to do that in the not too distant future, and the Online Safety Act is uh, a reason for that. Uh, But let's not forget that yesterday was Safer Internet Day, uh, so we should all have been celebrating (coughs) that. Uh, and uh, because if we're celebrating that, then we don't have the likes of Vanessa Bailey on the internet and it makes it much safer place, doesn't it? Uh, let's look and see what they said. Uh, young people's, they're particularly looking for a young people's perspective, uh, the, the organization that runs this uh, on new and emerging technologies. 
Um, this is a special celebration. It's all about young people because that's the next generation. They're much more likely to accept the type of censorship that, uh, that we're talking about here. Uh, they want to uh, explain all about using the internet to make change for the better. Uh, what change for the better is, is not defined. Uh, the changes young people want to see online. And finally, uh, the things that can influence and change the way young people think, feel and act online and offline. So now we start to get to what it's really about. It's about changing young minds. Uh, so that's what Safe, Safe, Safer Internet Day is all about. Ofcom, of course, is going to be the organization uh, which uh, pushes forward with the Online Safety Act legislation and, and makes it reality. Uh, and uh, they are running a consultation at the moment. I just want to remind everybody uh, all about protecting people from illegal harms on the internet. Now, of course, uh, we should be protecting people from illegal harms on the internet, but uh, naturally this is already uh, having a chilling effect on uh, freedom of speech on the internet beyond uh, what's being described as illegal harms. Uh, this is what they have to say. This is the first of four major consultations that Ofcom as a regulator of the new Online Safety Act will publish as part of our work to establish the new regulations over the next 18 months. Uh, they say it focuses on our proposals for how internet services that enable the sharing of user-generated content and search services should approach their new duties related to uh, illegal content. And so they describe that uh, as the, or they are looking in particular at the causes and impacts of illegal harms, uh, how services should assess and mitigate the risks of illegal harms, uh, how services can identify illegal content, uh, and finally, their approach to enforcement. And one of their approaches to enforcement, of course, uh, will be the requirement to audit tech companies and other organizations uh, to see how well they're doing. Um, so let's see what, uh, we should mention that the deadline for responses to this is 5 p.m. on Friday the 23rd of February, 2024. Uh, go and search uh, the Ofcom website, search uh, online for, uh, the headline is consultation protecting people from illegal harms online. Search for that and read the full documentation uh, and I would suggest that as many people as possible need to uh, get involved in pushing back against this. Uh, now, Vanessa, back to you for a second, because, uh, of course, one of the groups uh, of one of the demographics that has been under massive attack from the mainstream press at the moment uh, in the last number of years, aside from yourself and the likes of, of us, uh, have been academics. Uh, one academic in particular, David Miller, uh, just... Uh, Tell us what the latest is on his case, and then we'll have him on to discuss that in a bit more detail. Well, very good news uh, that a UK court rules in favour of a professor unfairly dismissed for anti-Zionist views. So just a, a little detail in the next slide. Um, uh, a UK court ruled on the 5th of February that Professor David Miller who was terminated from his position at the University of Bristol in 2021 for anti-Zionist views, was in fact discriminated against and unfairly dismissed. Rahman Lowe, uh, solicitors, the law firm representing Miller, said that the ruling was a significant triumph, setting a precedent for those who hold anti-Zionist beliefs to be legally protected in uh, the workplace. Professor Miller successfully claimed discrimination based on his philosophical belief that Zionism is inherently racist, imperialist, and colonial, a protected characteristic under the Equality Act 2010, alongside a finding of unfair dismissal. And uh, if we just look at the next slide, we can see 
that David is extremely pleased that the tribunal has concluded that I was unfairly and wrongfully dismissed by the University of Bristol. He's also very proud that we have managed to establish that anti-Zionist views qualify as a protected belief under the UK Equality Act. Okay, so uh, David, uh, let me welcome you to the programme. And uh, first of all, uh, give me your feedback on, on the result here. Uh, let's, let's start with that. Isn't it personally for me, um, where um, the court concluded that the university didn't properly investigate the complaints against me, didn't uh, properly investigate my defence of those complaints, and nor did they properly evaluate what they should do as a result of that. So that's a great victory for me. I will get compensation for that. That's yet to be decided. But the bigger point and the more important point, and the reason why we did this, really the most important reason why we did this, was to establish that anti-Zionist views should be protected as philosophical belief uh, under the UK's uh, uh, Equality Act of 2010. And we've managed to do that. We've managed to establish that, yes, that anti-Zionist views are protected under law, and also that the reason that, that I was sacked was because of my anti-Zionist views. The university had maintained it wasn't to do with my anti-Zionist views. On the contrary, it was to do with the fact that I had upset students or offended students or made students feel what they said was unsafe, uh, all of which were you know, propagandist attempts to have me sacked. Uh, and and uh, the court decided that, that on the contrary, that it was actually the anti-Zionist views which had, were what caused me to be sacked. And they decided that because the two university witnesses who investigated me and who sacked me can, can, can effectively confess that in cross-examination. It was a, it was a glorious moment when, when that happened. Um, so j just so that everybody is clear, what did you say in the first place that brought the initial investigation, the initial complaints? Oh, well, when you say initial investigation, let's remember there were three separate investigations of me at, at the University of Bristol, each of which determined that I had not on any occasion said anything remotely anti-Semitic. Uh, and to be very quick about this, the first complaint came in 2019 after I'd been there only six months. A lecture I gave on Islamophobia where I discussed my theory of the five pillars of Islamophobia in which one of the pillars is parts of the Zionist movement and some students took objection. Uh, there was a complaint from an Israel lobby group uh, that was rejected. They then roped in a student organization to complain and that complaint went on for two years and uh, all the way through lockdown and eventually a QC cleared me on every single charge including additional charges that the university had unilaterally added to the charge sheet. Uh, and the QC concluded that there wasn't a single thing I'd said ever, and this is in statements going back to 2013, which was anti-Semitic. The second, uh, sorry, the third complaint, uh, or the third uh, uh, investigation of me, sorry, uh, was in February 2021, six weeks after the first report had exonerated me on everything. And what I said then was, in a public meeting, uh, not during work for Labour Against the Witch Hunt, I said, uh, and I can quote this exactly, it's burned into my memory. I said that, uh, as some of you will know, I have been uh, have been attacked and complained about by the president of the Union of Jewish Students and by the president of the, of the Bristol Jewish Society. And that was the words which effectively got me sacked. They, they looked at some other words as well, but that was the words. That I was, what I was doing there was uh, factually stating what had happened to me. I had been attacked and complained about by these organisations, which are, of course, formally... Zionist organisations. So the, the, there was this outpouring of horror, 
and grief and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Um, Zionist professors at my university wrote to complain. Zionist professors from all over the world wrote to complain. Over a hundred members of the House of Lords and the House of Commons wrote to complain from, I think, seven political parties, uh, stunningly. And uh, as a result, the university felt under pressure to, to sack me. They had another investigation which cleared me of anti-Semitism, but which determined that, uh, that because some students had said that they were upset and that they felt threatened by my anti-Zionist views, that I should be sacked. And uh, that was the, their, the reason that they maintained they had sacked me. And of course, uh, as I've said, under cross-examination, they wilted and uh, effectively confessed that the real reason was the, the terrible nature of my anti-Zionist views, which now stand uh, as quite reasonable uh, um, and mild uh, expressions of anti-Zionism, which are protected under law. Incredible. Um, and I mean, what are your thoughts on the on the more general point about academia and the right to express opinion? Is 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 there is there room in academia in the twenty first century for opinion, or is it just about uh, churning out facts to students these days? And facts oh, in well, inverted commas, wish, by the way. <laughs> I wish there were more facts being churned out because, of course, that's the problem. You can't say facts. I mean, that, the, the, actually, the thing, interesting thing about this is that I. I've been studying propaganda, lobbying, and power for all my academic career. And, and what I said about the Zionist movement was based on research. It wasn't just my opinion. I, I do have anti-Zionist beliefs, and, uh, and they come from a d deep level of conviction, but they are also informed by research I've done over many, many years. And this is what I said to the court. I said, look, what, what was I supposed to do? I'm a social scientist. I found these things out. Should I not say them? Should I pretend that I don't know what Zionism is? Of course, I can't. I can't do that. Otherwise, I would not be a social scientist. I would simply be a propagandist. And so, my overall view on this is that is that it's it's very very difficult to actually um, uh, properly discuss evidence based research about structures of power, in particular imperial structures of power, and, in, and of course, uh, as part of that, the Zionist movement. So, it's, it's and the reason for that is is that uh, uh, the pressures on uh, on academic uh, freedom and on the universities in general are, first of all, the, the neoliberalization of, of the university and the, the marketization of the, the university so that student numbers are a, a key driving factor. But second of all, the massive pressure that is put on universities by the structures of power, in particular imperial structures of power. So, for example, over the question of, of, um, of Syria or of Ukraine, or indeed of Palestine, there's massive pressure put uh, to conform to the view of uh, of NATO, of the US and the UK in relation to specifically Palestine. In addition to that, there is, of course, massive pressure put on by the Zionist movement, which is extremely well organized uh, and extremely extensive. I mean, I've been writing about this now for some time. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, sorry, hang on. And what I would say is that there's an article I wrote about this where people mocked my view that Zionism was everywhere. But if you look at the extent of Zionism and its organization in the UK, there are, I, I estimate conservatively, there, there are over 2,000 separate Zionist organizations in, in the UK, many more than that in the US, of course. Uh, and they are engaged uh, on a daily basis in trying to justify, promote, and excuse the, the genocide in Gaza. And, and that's a huge pressure on universities so that when something like this happens, when someone makes an unpopular statement or is an anti-Zionist, it's not just that you get 
pressure from Parliament and from Zionist professors and from the Zionist movement. You also get pressure from from a, a university funders. So my university was put under pressure by uh, funding bodies, which said that they would no longer give money unless they, unless I was sacked or dealt with. And these bodies were, of course. Uh, foundations which give money to to uh, to other Zionist causes, to settlements, to the IDF, etc. So there there is very little scope for uh, for academic freedom, which goes against the interests and the wishes of power. That's what I would say. Yes, David, thank you very much for that. And I uh, just very briefly get your comment on this because we're holding a symposium on Sunday, the eighteenth of February, uh, six p.m. UK time, at which you're taking part. Piers Robinson is organising this. Uh, this is through the Organisation for Propaganda Studies and our, ourselves and Propaganda in Focus. Uh, so, Piers Robinson, Daniel Brody, Oliver Boyd Barrett, Jared Ball, and yourself. So, um, we look forward to, to hearing more from you on that. But uh, have you got any just brief comments on that? Yes, I mean, we, I mean, one of the things I've been attacked for, as you can see from the slide there, is the, that I am somehow a, a sad apologist. Uh, uh, I've also, of course, been attacked for being a Putin apologist, for being an apologist for the mullahs in Iran and, and various other things, as if uh, I would be working for the intelligence agencies of all three countries, never mind pro probably also of China. I mean, this is this is ridiculous, but nevertheless, it's a serious way, it's a serious um, force curtailing academic freedom uh, in the UK and elsewhere today. Yeah. Okay, David, thank you very much for joining us today and uh, we will see you on the 18th. Um, Charles, uh, let me welcome you to the programme. And uh, well, obviously warfare and war in the military very much in the news at the moment. Uh, but uh, something that maybe is flying <coughs> slightly under the radar uh, has been the uh, uh, issue of veterans' ID cards. That's right, Mike. Thank you very much and good afternoon. Yes, Veterans ID cards announced last week uh, as being rolled out uh, and really something that looks like a classic example of mission creep, which is to say a project that has snowballed to the point that means it's well beyond its original remit. This goes back to an announcement in 2019 that service leavers would receive a new card, which was really designed just to keep them in touch with their military service. We hear now that people leaving will automatically be given one of the new cards. Uh, and they, will, they, they say, interestingly, that it will be used to verify their service to the NHS. And they stress that it will help them access support. Now, one wonders why service in the military couldn't simply be included in medical records, as opposed to documented by the, uh, the card, the veteran's card itself. And in, in, the, in the application, we see that we're, the, the concept of having all things centralised under the one government login is, again, being introduced into the, the mindset. If we can just pop that slide on. So whilst it's not a complicated process, process at the moment, and I would start, in fact, a uh, digital ID, but you'll, you'll see the direction of travel. Uh, and we have um, Johnny Mercer, who's been very much involved on and off with Veterans Affairs over the last few years, tweeting in a, a one might contest, a rather tone-deaf manner that £45 million pounds has been digitising veterans' records. And, of course, there might be completely legitimate questions asked about veterans, other issues such as homelessness and trauma that may not be receiving the attention that they should. 
Mercer spoke about this in a video clip, which we'll play now and comment on in a second. I promised my veterans ID cards about 15 months ago now to make sure that they were being rolled out. They started being rolled out last year. We wanted to get to a place where everyone can apply for it. We're now at that place. We're actually exceeding our targets. You know, I promised 10,000 a month. Actually, you know, we're through that already. Clearly, you know, 2.2 million veterans in this country is going to be a big job to roll them out. But we've made commitments. We've hit all our timelines so far and we'll continue to do that until we've rolled these out. In terms of money spent on it, you know, this was the number one ask of the big six charities. And I think a, a country has a duty to understand where veterans are, who they are, uh, and what they're entitled to. To be frank, you know, we spent £500,000 on a printer um, and other capabilities to get them out the door, but the majority of the work goes into digitising Vets UK, which should have been done 30 or 40 years ago to make sure that we understood where our veterans are and looked after them properly. So is it value for money? Absolutely. Uh, has it been extraordinarily difficult to get it over the line because of all the working parts? Yes. And if, if, it, was, if it was easy, it would have been done by now. If uh, th there are some who, who may not want a veterans ID card, they're not mandatory, but for the vast majority of people, I think it's going to be a really useful addition to their lives. So, Charles, is this about uh, understanding where veterans are so that they can get help, or is this about the government actually being nervous about veterans and wanting to understand where, where they are because they perceive them as being some kind of opposition? As always, the devil is in the detail. And exactly as you say, the three things that drop out of Mercer's words there. First of all, there are 2.2 million veterans in the country, which is a sizable percentage of the adult population. No bones about the, in effect, tracking and surveilling of veterans via this means. And the other thing, which I think would be easy to, to ignore, was the fact that he said, this is not mandatory. Now, why would he say such a thing? It seems very jarring in the context with which he's speaking. We'll come back to that in a minute. Now, as I mentioned, this was initially put forward in 2019. So why the holdup? And indeed, where has the uh, particular thrust come from? So we look at the uh, veteran strategy drawn up effectively after the lockdown had started and text from that shows that as I say, mission creep, and effectively the goalposts have moved from having had no mention about fraudulent use or verification, that now creeps into the language where the government says that it's committed to exploring the secure digital verification of veterans' status. Well, therefore, it should be little surprise to see that involved at the heart of that at that period was Tobias Elwood, still serving as a reservist in 77 Brigade, which has recently been publicly uh, sort of acknowledged to have spied on British citizens during the lockdown period. So Elwood, a central character in, in this, and we should therefore look a bit deeper into the strategy, and in particular, the specific note that enhanced data collection on the veteran community is absolutely underpinning this strategy Further, the key themes list veterans and the law with the rather surprising statement that veterans leave the armed forces with the resilience and awareness to remain law-abiding citizens. Now, reading between the lines, it looks very much like the conditions are being set for some sort of social credit system. And in order to go back to the theme of normalising these sorts of schemes and effectively 
laying down the foundations for, for digital identity. We'll have a look at a couple of examples that, uh, that illustrate what I mean. For those that have served in the armed forces from the Commonwealth or overseas, they are given the right to settle in the UK when they finish their service. Uh, but this is um, conditional upon a biometric residence permit. And we see that there's a further lure by the listing of a super priority service if you provide your biometric uh, information if your appointment is on a weekday and, and so, so, so forth. Um, so very much sort of ram down your throat that the security and convenience of it are exactly what you want to do. And then also, again, by sort of compartmentalizing and, and creating segments of society that are in effect captured by this, we see again an example here where the post office and Yoti are providing digital ID for the right to rent. Uh, and also the cinema, um, again, capturing young people, exactly like Mike was referring to earlier, proof of age, but under the, um, under the digital ID sort of banner, so uh, what exactly is this, is this doing and, and where's it come from? So we go back to the, what the government says about enabling the use of digital identities and are they really being straight with us? Uh, I think it's very easy to see that the language is changing all the time. Now the government, again, pains to say that they're not making digital identities mandatory, but also, and again, you would have seen that from the pairing with Yoti, the critical part here is that this involves the private sector and indeed the massive vulnerabilities that come with that. And I'm not suggesting that, that a state organized project would be any more secure. But the point is that, that both the twin aspects of technical failure and vulnerability in terms of what might happen to data captured by these public, uh, sorry, private organizations is a consideration that has been completely overlooked. And also there's very little uh, statement in terms of what exactly is the purpose of this? There's no articulation of why it would be better to have a digital version of a hard copy of something that already works. And uh, as if to further reinforce that, I had a back and forth with the Ministry of Defence two years ago in 2022, and similar language used highlighted there. However, I should highlight veterans will continue to be able to access existing services without an ID card and under no duress to have one if they choose not to. Now, this was in response to my asking what such a thing might be connected to. And indeed, we now see that it, it is due to be linked up to all the services via the one login on the government. So in terms of how the future looks and what the Ministry of Defence says, is there, is there necessarily uh, a straight path between the two? And I would contest that that might not be the case. The call for evidence for digital ID started in 2019, but of course the results didn't come through till after the lockdowns and all the rest of it had started in 2020. And we hear, surprise, surprise, that COVID-19 has accelerated changing lifestyles and working habits in the UK. And particularly here, organisations and individuals had to find a safe digital way to do what they would normally do in person. So the point to be made here is that whilst the government might be saying that these veterans' IDs are completely innocuous, they're a memento of service, they help you access the NHS, we can see that there's a clear track record of the goalposts moving on a very regular basis. And indeed, there are many other digital biometric identity schemes that have captured these particular segments of society. And I go back to there being 2.2 million veterans in the country uh, and they're a very, very um, sort of amenable target, as it were. And, and exactly like Mike says, with, with the whiff of conscription in the air, this is very much one to watch. 
Charles, thank you very much for that. Now, uh, let's move on. If you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, uh, options to do that at community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, you'd be very welcome as a member, and we very much need your support if you can possibly do that. Um, you can pick something up at the UK Column shop, but please do share anything you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Um, a couple of advertisements, uh, the interview that Brian did with Jackie Devoid, uh, Devoy talking about uh, democide in the UK, uh, that is up on the UK Column website at the moment. Uh, if you haven't seen that, please watch uh, at 1pm tomorrow. Um, Charles is interviewing, Charles, you're interviewing uh, Farmer Angus. Indeed, yes, yep. Farmer Angus. Yeah, I am here, sorry. I thought, uh, yes, um, a Stellenbosch farmer who's come from the corporate world and completely sort of turned things around for a large plot of land where he's using regenerative farming techniques. And it, I think it would be a very interesting insight into the, the language that's been hijacked and manipulated surrounding the net zero agenda and exactly what carbon and carbon dioxide, how they do relate to agricultural practices as opposed to how they relate to uh, restrictions upon our lives. Brilliant, thank you. And uh, a quick advertisement for a couple of events. Uh, the Science Beautiful Festival 2024 taking place uh, in Dorset in Wimborne, June 27th to the 30th. Uh, there's a promotional code for this, uh, UK Column. And if you uh, pick up tickets uh, with uh, that code, uh, they'll be holding a draw and uh, some winner or winners will uh, receive uh, either a refund or at least free tickets uh, if they want to use them or a refund on the tickets that they have. Uh, another one to look out for is uh, Stand in the Light. This is the Light newspaper and the Stand in the Park. Uh, their event is taking place uh, in uh, uh, in um, Cumbria. Sorry, uh, this is on May the twenty fourth, twenty to the twenty seventh. Uh, have a look for Stand in the Light dot uh, online, and you'll find more details on that. Uh, now let's welcome Matt Campbell to the program. And uh, well, Matt uh, is uh, the brother of Jeff. Jeff sadly passed away on uh, September the 11th uh, in the uh, so-called attack in New York. Um, and Matt is on the left there. Um, they uh, have been in touch with the government and so on uh, with respect to getting a new inquest into the, uh, the, the uh, situation on September the 11th. And well, once again, the government seems to have rejected that. So let's just read a couple of paragraphs uh, from the statement that the Campbell family has uh, put out. Uh, so we're saddened to announce that for the second time the Solicitor General for England and Wales, acting on behalf of the Attorney General for England and Wales, has refused our application for a fresh inquest into the death of our beloved son and brother, Jeff Thomas Campbell, on September the 11th, 2001. The Attorney General's first decision, issued in June of last year, was so legally indefensible that our letter notifying her of our intention to seek judicial review and our statement of facts and grounds compelled the Solicitor General to withdraw that decision last September. It turns out that the Solicitor General withdrew the decision not for the purpose of conducting a more thorough, objective and legally sound review of our application, but rather for the purpose of concocting a new set of rationalist, uh, rationales and for denying the application. Uh, Jeff, let, or Matt, apologies, let me welcome you to the programme. Um, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, uh, thanks, Mike. Um, I mean, it's it's just... I guess it's just lawfare. I mean, it's so frustrating. We're 22 what, and a half years on now. 
Um, my brother's original inquest was in January 2013. And later on in that year, I basically wanted to go about getting his inquest reopened. And it's been a long journey just to get to where we are. Um, so frustrating because, you know, it took 22 months for them to make the decision last June, which was unlawful and irrational. We threatened litigation through applying for ju judicial review. They backed down and withdrew that decision. So we were kind of confident that, okay, they're going to make a new decision, but it would be a positive one. And they would basically, you know, recommend and give permission for my brother's inquest to be reopened. Sadly, um, beginning of this year, um, yeah, they've they've come back with it's it's more of the same, but you know perhaps even more ludicrous the reasons why um, they're refusing um, to you know give permission to react my brother's inquest. Um, well, well, look, look, Matt. Just before we go into the the specific reasons for this refusal, I, I just want to ask you about a general point because there's a court case going on involving Richard D. Hall, um, and the and the and it was last Monday was the the hearing. Um, and the question was whether he would be allowed to present any evidence at the full court hearing, which is in the future at some point. Um, and the rationale from the uh, from the, the lawyers that he was facing um, was that all the facts were established in the inquest and therefore there's ne no need to go over them again. Um, this seems to be an attitude we're not just seeing in your case, but in other cases as well, therefore. And, and I just want to get some thoughts on you, first of all, about where you think we stand on the facts as the 9-11, various 9-11 inquiries have established at this point? Uh, you mean outside of the inquest or? Uh, outside of your specific inquest, because, because you know, it, <clears throat> my point is that, 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 that the, the, the establishment of the facts of the day seems to be a rationale for all kinds of refusal to, to re-look at things. Yeah, I mean, you know, that people, um, doesn't matter who I've contacted, will always cite the 9-11 the um, Commission um, report. And, and obviously with uh, the towers themselves and how they came down, they uh, defer to, to NIST. Um, you know, that's, that's what everyone seems to do. But, um, you know, for, for me, you've got ongoing cases. I mean, it's very clear if we just look at one aspect of 9-11, which is Saudi Arabia's involvement. Um, you know, that cover-up started almost day one. I mean, I think within two days, 300 Saudis were, were flown out. Um, and, you know, so much has been blocked and not released to the families, even through, I think the FBI did an investigation in 2016 called um, Operation Encore. And a lot of that wasn't released. And I think, you know, it's only in the last couple of years, I think Biden signed some sort of presidential um, executive order that, release those documents but they're still not fully redacted um and you know we see more and more of saudi arabia's involvement so i mean there's definitely been a cover-up going on for for 20 odd years for you know certain aspects of of um 9-11 and then you have the trials um well the pre-trial still uh, in guantanamo bay that's you know not going anywhere and so it's it's so frustrating to me that okay we've had an inquiry the 9-11 commission report but nothing's actually gone through a court of law there's nothing that would actually stand up in a, in a court of law. And, you know, that's why bringing it back to the inquest, because there is this path, if you've got new evidence, if you can show that there was an insufficiency of inquiry, and there absolutely was, um, you know, that we can um, petition the Attorney General to get a, a new inquest um, reopened. Um, you know, and for me, this is the best chance always has been of getting 
evidence, which is obviously very contrary to the official narrative, actually in a court of law, and to establish, you know, what really killed my brother and obviously thousands of other people. Uh, and so what were the specific excuses this time round? Um, well, I mean, first of all, they, I, I guess they, def- they defer to, like I mentioned, the NIST, the National Institute of Standards Technology, um, and their reports. These, bear in mind, are reports that were not put in front of the coroner. So they're basically deferring in, uh, to reports that the coroner never saw, which is not a reason why, you know, we've given you evidence as to why the inquest should be reopened. The actual uh, irony of, of citing those reports is they only go up to collapse initiation. They don't actually um, investigate how the towers came down, which ultimately killed my brother. Um, so they're citing things like that. They say that none of our expert um, eyewitness testimony, our actual eyewitnesses, which are first responders, that's police officers, uh, you know, medical responders, etc., who are witnesses to explosives, explosions, etc., um, that's not credible. Um, the you know the physics that you can see, which is the constant acceleration of the north half of four seconds, it can't do that if it's destroying stuff underneath. Um, they basically dismissed all that as saying it's not credible, but then in the same breath they say, oh, but we're not going to actually assign any of our own experts to examine your evidence. They've not engaged whatsoever with the two and a half thousand page application that we submitted. They are, by law, when they're applying their test, they're supposed to, if they give these reasons for refusal, show why. They, they haven't. They also you know, uh, say strange things like they can't conceive of what additional benefit there would be of bringing down the towers. I mean, you're, you're trying, a terrorist attack is basically to create as much terror as possible. You, know, you could argue, why do they just do one plane, not four? Yeah, you know, it's to create terror. Um, you know, bringing down the towers is certainly going to terrify everyone and to, you know, usher in all the um, the wars and stuff that, that followed afterwards. Um, it's it's just frustrating because that they haven't addressed anything that we have submitted and they're just trying to dismiss it. But just like we were confident last September when we uh, applied for judicial review or threatened litigation and they backed down because they realised what they gave us in June was, you know, was rubbish and it would, they would have lost in the high court. I think what they're doing now is they still don't have a leg to stand on. So they're using these, you know, very um, wishy-washy arguments. They're just playing lawfare. They want to exhaust us. They know it costs a lot of money to engage a barrister to do a judicial review. And they're just hoping that we give up. Um, That's how I see what they're doing right now. They don't want anyone, particularly family members, questioning official narratives. It's, It's a nightmare for them. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, well look, uh, uh, we there is a crowdfunder because you are needing to raise a little bit of money for uh, to, to take this forward. So um, that is on crowdfunder. Is that crowdfunder.com? Uh, yeah. The easiest way, though, is to go to ic911.org. Um, and then there's a link there to this crowdfunder. It's a, a British uh, crowdfunding website. I mean, you know, we're trying to raise £60,000 by the 1st of March. Uh, the absolute cutoff point for us is the 3rd of April. Um, and obviously, we've got to engage a barrister and do work beforehand. So, yeah, we've only got like you know less than four weeks now. Um, pressure's on, but we did it last year. Um, you know, within a few days uh, to go to the deadline, we managed to raise the funds. You know, people dug deep and, and helped. So we're hoping um, the same can happen this time around.
Okay, Matt Campbell, thank you very much for joining us today. And uh, we will be speaking more in the next couple of days. So uh, there'll be more from Matt uh, soon. Vanessa, let me welcome you back to the program. And uh, what's the latest on Hez... On Hez oh, sorry, no, it's... it's <laughs> do apologize. Charles next. Uh, and uh, we're looking at... Because you're in Africa at the moment, Charles. And so we're looking at uh, conflict... Uh, 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 sorry, what's the word? Bail me out here. Thank you. Conflict minerals. minerals. Yes. Go ahead. Uh, I know I'm far away, but not that far away. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Mike. Um, this is concerning the recent announcement in Kenya that there has been a discovery of what's called coltan. I'll go on to explain the significance of this, but you see the note from the Ministry of Mining and the text of which, or at least a, a snippet of it, says that um, the minister says, I'm pleased to declare that we have discovered coltan, columbite and tantalite in Kenya. Since coltan is a strategic mineral, the government will put in place the necessary documentation on development and traceability of the mineral. Coltan is among the minerals gazetted as strategic minerals. Now, that last bit, strategic minerals, is very important. Um, tantalite is really the, the parts of interest here. It's from tantalite that tantalum, the uh, element, is extracted, and that's used in the capacitors for mobile telephones and GPS and whatnot. So whilst trade in this particular and might not be enormous at the moment. It is increasing. And of course, by being in a country that the United Kingdom has good relations with, in a country that has, uh, in effect, better credentials than a lot of those that are more resource rich, DRC being the most obvious example, uh, added to which the logistical simplicity of extracting such things um, out of the country makes this uh, an appealing prospect, not just for the United Kingdom, but of course, for other users of such a product. So just to get an idea of what the United Kingdom does do in relation to tantalum, I've got data from the Observatory of Economic Complexity, and you can see at the moment it's only £28 million a year, but that does rank the UK as 11th in the world for dealing or at least importing tantalum. Now, the significant detail is that uh, most of this tantalum is imported from China and it looks, therefore, very much like we are, in effect, um, sort of sourcing the mineral responsibly. But of course, that's not actually the case. Tantalum is referred to as being a conflict mineral, uh, shown here on a page from the University of Edinburgh, the text of which says that conflict minerals are mined in conflict zones and used by armed groups to fund violence and wars. And of course, with all the various policy initiatives in the United Kingdom now, um, certainly we, we must not be seen to be doing such a thing. But highlighted here, it says once mined, the minerals are shipped mainly to Asia, which is why we are able to buy minerals from China and make it look like that's where they're being sourced from. Of course, that's not really the case. In the critical mineral, mineral strategy for the United Kingdom, exactly like that of Kenya, we see tantalum there highlighted uh, and the word soup one might describe here, saying that the government is going to build the case for a market-led, transparent and diversified supply chain with like-minded partners through the UK's extensive multilateral engagement. Now, that seems to be a, a sentence that could be interpreted any which way. And at the bottom there, we see that uh, sustainability, transparency, human rights and environmental goals come into play. Now, do they really or... Is that not quite the case? Now, as Mike said, I'm in Kenya at the minute. I've requested information from the ministry as to the order of magnitude of this discovery and indeed which companies might be involved with any of the process so far. 
I've not heard anything back, but I will keep looking into that and hope to produce a bit more information on it. Also worth noting that in the text so far, they do say that artisanal miners of this uh, substance will be able to carry on doing what they're doing. So again, we'll see whether that really does turn out to be the case or not, or is this a further example of what might be referred to as greenwashing. So just to show you again, that the DRC, of course, is the top producer of this, where there are enormous human rights concerns. There's absolutely no doubt these are absolutely, as described by the University of Edinburgh, as conflict, uh, conflict minerals. And it does make the, the UK's conflict mineral strategy look like a minefield of hypocrisy, in effect, uh, suggesting that these minerals are being mined for the purposes of benefiting the environment and the economies of the countries that they're being extracted from. Whereas, of course, the reality is the, it's the, the destruction of the landscape and indeed, uh, in effect, the subjugation or the servitude of the population that become involved with it. Um, so just to reinforce that point, we have the, the, some policy coming from Chatham House. This is from last year, written evidence by a senior research fellow from the Africa programme, Christopher Van Dom. And as part of what he said, he, he's effectively saying that we do have to go to Africa, we've got to make the situation better. And highlighted here, currently there is a perception that the UK is imposing environmental constraints on emerging producer countries and not adequately engaging on more complicated social and governance issues. So it is this, this same old uh, issue of the, the ESG and trying to make something look better than it actually is. So in, in effect, a, a, as I say, a, a large uh, game of smoke and mirrors and certainly something that you know be interesting to see as a, as a sort of case study how this unfolds with specific relation to the critical mineral strategy of the UK. I mean, the critical mineral strategy of the UK for many generations has been to asset strip uh, what's under the ground in Africa, uh, Charles. And, and uh, this just uh, the, the whole net zero uh, issue is, is just perpetuating that same modus operandi. Absolutely. And this is case in point. I think this is why this discovery, even though, you know, in the overall scale of, of minerals that are being resourced, obviously it's, it is but a drop in the ocean. But no doubt there is going to be increasing pressure for this resource. And, and again, you know, given the, the conflict in the, the Horn of Africa or the, the, the Red Sea, I mean, all of these things will, will take effect in, in this game. And so um, you, you're absolutely right. Yes. Okay. Thanks, Charles. And uh, yeah, Vanessa. Then at last, uh, Hezbollah. <laughs> yes. So we've been talking um, for the last few weeks about the potential of escalation um, by Israel against uh, Hezbollah in southern Lebanon. Uh, Amos Hochstein, a representative of the Biden administration, on a shuttle diplomacy tour. Um, has been trying to get an agreement and to allegedly defuse the tensions in uh, the northern occupied territories. Hebrew language media reported Saturday um, that the U.S. brokered proposal includes three phases. First, uh, the agreement that will include a withdrawal of Hezbollah forces between eight kilometers and 10 kilometers from areas near the boundary with uh, occupied territories. Second, an increase in the deployment of UN forces and the Lebanese army in the area that has never been successful in the past. 
And third, the return of residents to northern uh, occupied territories and to south Lebanon. Um, this will also include talks on demarcating an actual land border between Israel and Lebanon. Now, what's interesting is that the caretaker foreign minister for the Lebanese government has actually rejected demands to push Hezbollah away from the southern border. So this is a very clear message of support for Hezbollah in southern Lebanon from the government. Um, and basically what he said is that the demand is um, disproportionately in favor of Israel. And so he's saying that Israel should also commit the liberation of Sheba farms and the Shuba hills, saying what we hear from some foreign ministers of Western countries is that Israel is not in the question of this withdrawal. And our answer was that Lebanon will only accept a complete solution to all border issues with Israel. And he also demanded that part of a potential deal to be for Israel to stop the air, land and sea violations that have exceeded 30,000 since 2006. So, of course, we're at, again, a, a complete dead end on negotiations. And this is what Sayed uh, Mohammed Morandi had to say about the potential for, uh, uh, for sorry, an Israeli invasion. So the, the West sees, has seen that the Israelis have lost on all accounts. And they and Israel together are searching from, for some, some sort of path to victory. Yep. Or to at least to escape defeat. So the West is intensifying or uh, the genocide, not just by supporting Israel, but also by trying to block aid from getting into Gaza. Mm. They're desperate. And that is why the Americans are helping the Israelis. They're preparing them for a, an attack on Lebanon. There's intelligence uh, that uh, the Israelis are preparing for an attack. We don't know if it's going to happen, but the mm -hmm. Americans have uh, given them the, the weapons and they're uh, uh, building ammunition depots in the north to prepare for this. So the Americans are, and the Israelis, by expanding the war, whether in Yemen or Iraq or Syria or Lebanon, it's all being done be to find a path to victory. Yeah. Or at least an escape from defeat. But the only thing that is going to happen is that it's going to make the defeat even greater because mm -hmm. the resistance front is not going to back down oh interesting times we'll be watching over the next couple of weeks to see what happens uh how does how does the west get out of the position that it's in at the moment Vanessa? <laughs> that's a very good question and it's a question i actually asked mohammed morandi and and really i don't think anyone has an answer to it I don't see, you know, the West generally never backs down. It doubles down on, on whatever crimes it's committing. As he said, looking for a path to victory or an avoidance of defeat. But they've committed themselves on so many fronts now. Uh, and they've committed themselves to the defense of Israel, despite uh, that defense becoming indefensible and, and a huge rise in court cases being brought against the members of the Israeli coalition, including the UK, Netherlands, Canada, the United States. Um, so, good question. I don't have an answer, to be honest. 
Charles, have you any thoughts on it? Well, I'm afraid I don't have an answer. I think it's something that's going to take a very long time. But I would say it does link very closely to what I was thinking about when Matt was speaking about the the, the Attorney General. And I think that, you know it's it's the most horribly compromised post in government, and it does it it does send such a message about the way the establishment thinks it's acceptable to conduct itself and how difficult it is, therefore to try and change the course of that particular juggernaut. Yes, okay. Well, look, uh, we're gonna leave everybody on that thought because uh, we don't have an answer to that particular question. We'll maybe talk about a little bit more about this in extra in a few minutes time. If you're a UK Column member, we hope you join us for that. Uh, otherwise, uh, we'll be back at the same time on uh, Friday, 1 p.m. Uh, don't forget the interview at 1 p.m. tomorrow, but we'll see you Friday. Bye-bye.